Brethren, I think you know that prophecy is certainly moving along. I'm not preaching on prophecy today, but we have just had this blackout, of course, over the whole northeastern part of the United States. And that's not necessarily directly prophesied, but it certainly indicates what could happen very, very quickly. Uh, if a terrorist get involved, it'd be pretty easy to shut this nation down when you think about it. They've had whole articles on these big container ships coming back and forth into the Los Angeles Harbor, Boston Harbor, especially New York Harbor and elsewhere. They could simply put atomic bombs on those ships and blow up the whole city very easily. I'm surprised that something has not happened in the last two years since 9-11. But something will happen, and uh, we don't know when or how, but God's certainly going to indicate, and does indicate, as Mr. Ezekiel's, fi- Mr. Uh, Mr. Wynn's fine telecast on Ezekiel indicated. Mr. Ezekiel's telecast, that's right. <laughs> it's on the book of Ezekiel. But anyway, those things are going to occur. And uh, remember that America and Britain, we used to think of us as being the descendants of Israel, and we certainly are of the house of Joseph, but the French people are the descendants of the house of Reuben. And uh, they've been having a terrible time, as some of you have read. About 3,000 Frenchmen have died of this recent heat wave, and they're even having trouble with the mortuaries and the morticians and the grave diggers and everything. They had an article on page 3 of today's paper about that. These things are moving along. The peoples of Israel are certainly having a lot of situations. The major ones have not started yet. We know that. But nevertheless, a lot of preliminary things are happening. But very, very few people understand these things. Very, very few people understand what Mr. O'Gwen was preaching about today. Extremely few people really understand the meaning of world events. Why? Because they don't understand. They don't understand the Bible. Professing Christianity is in confusion. As we know, there are four or five hundred different denominations all calling themselves Christian, and they all have different doctrines, different practices, different forms of church governments, different ideas. There's been a huge apostasy in the last 20 years, even in the church of God, unfortunately. A huge apostasy. Why? Why can these things happen? Well, frankly, because many religious scholars point out And this affects us also. But many religious scholars have pointed out, and I've had quotes on these things in my articles, they pointed out that even most professing churchgoers in the United States and the Western world are, as they put it, quote, woefully ignorant of the Bible. They just grow up going to church. That's what I did. I just grew up and went to my parents' church, and I memorized the Lord's Prayer and the 23rd Psalm and the golden verse, you know, God so loved the world, and so on. That's about all we knew. You get us away from that, and we're kind of lost in the impenetrable forest. We don't understand the Bible. Most Christians do not. Most churchgoers do not. Many in the church of God are like this. If they had not been like that, they would not have fallen away so quickly and so easily during the recent apostasy. They heard it. They grew up in it, a lot of them. They did not understand. They did not prove it. And when new ideas came along that seemed exciting, they just went along with the crowd. It was a social thing to many of them, whatever. And that's a terrible thing. And many people, brethren, in God's church are easily misled and confused when obviously wrong teachings, I say obviously wrong teachings, because they are very obvious to those who understand the Bible, but obviously wrong teachers come along and they still just go right along with it. What's the solution? This is an important thing, brethren, because this kind of deception is going to happen again. There will be different waves of apostasy that will affect this church 
Some of you will not be here probably one year from now. Many of you will not be here five or ten years from now. I'm sorry to say that. I love, I love all of you. I like you. I enjoy everyone here. I'm not against any one of you here. I've just been in the church about 54 years and I've seen this happen. So I know it's going to continue to happen. I'm sorry to say. Some of you will get bugged about something and fall away. Some of you will get your feelings about something, uh, get your feelings hurt about something and fall away. And a lot of you will just get confused about something and fall away. That's a terrible thing to say, but that's the truth. Turn with me to 2 Timothy, if you would. 2 Timothy, chapter 2 and verse 15. Let's start in verse 14, if you would. 2 Timothy, chapter 2 and verse 14. Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit to the ruin of the hearers, arguing around about inconsequential things. Be diligent, or as God says in the King James, study, Study, really dig in on it, to present yourself approved to God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So study, to rightly divide the word of truth, or be diligent, can be translated either way. Study the Bible, really study the Bible. And the indication here is diligently. But shun profane and vain babblings, people's ideas on fringe things that don't amount to anything, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenius and Philetus are of this sort. He literally named two men here. Some of us occasionally have to name some men who've gone off and tried to deceive people or are trying to deceive people today. And we will do that if it is necessary. But Paul was doing that here in this case. Who have strayed, these men have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past. Wow. In other words, they say Christ's resurrection is the resurrection. There isn't any more. I guess that's what they were saying. And they have overthrown the faith of some. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. He knows who has God's Spirit and is willing to obey. He's marked them. He's sealed them with the Holy Spirit. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Many other scriptures tell us that. He that says, I know him and keeps not his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Second John, I mean, sorry, First John 2, 4. It's another way. Same thing. Same statement as he has here. Let everyone who calls himself a Christian depart from lawlessness. Let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. That's a sign, you see, if you've completely turned and begin to obey God. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, wonderful, rich things, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. And that's the case with the church of God. It was back then, it is today. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, that is, these things of dishonor, weakness, confusion, sin, lethargy, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, Prepared for every good work. We're to cleanse ourselves from those things that are weak and those things that bring dishonor to God and dishonor to ourselves. And we are not to be easily overthrown, obviously, by clever arguments by anybody. Turn back, if you would, brethren, to John, the sixth chapter. Let's go back to John, chapter six. And you look for this T here. I found it.
John chapter 6, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 53. Then Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Now, frankly, brethren, it would look on the surface to some, if they wanted to be sarcastic, that Jesus was teaching cannibalism. You know, you, you chew on His arm and, and drink the blood and all that kind of thing. Obviously, there is a very profound spiritual meaning here. I think we understand that, but we need to review it. We need to think about it. We need to make it part of our lives. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Yes, he has eternal life. It doesn't mean he is immortal, but he's going to be raised up at the last day because he has the presence of eternal life in him. He has Christ in him, the Holy Spirit in him. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. But, of course, he's talking not just about his physical flesh and blood, but the very thing that he is, the Son of God, the Word of God made flesh. Christ was the Word. And that's the whole key to this, because as you read back at the beginning of John, if you want to keep your place in John 6, but in the beginning of John, chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos, the spokesman for God, the revelatory principle. And the Word was God, and the Word was, was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. He was the one through whom God created the worlds. He was the Word, the spokesman. So you have to eat of Him. You have to eat of His message. You have to eat and drink of Jesus Christ. You have to imbibe, so to speak, of everything Jesus thought and did and stood for. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Christ lives in us. Verse 56, if we have God's Holy Spirit within us. And of course that ties in, as you know, with my favorite verse, Galatians 2.20. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Christ must live his life in us, literally through the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 57, as the living Father, notice, here's the key, sent me, and I live because of the Father. In other words, God's power was in him. God's Spirit was in him, living in him. So he who feeds on me, literally feeding on Jesus Christ, drinking in over and over of Christ, everything about him, his word, his teaching, his character. So he who feeds on me, will live because of me. And brethren, we've got to do that or we will not have eternal life. We can't just attend church. We're not here to play church. We're not playing games. We're here because at the very end of this age, God has called a few of us. And I know and I know that I know, brethren, that we might have more than five or ten years. I'm not saying we will, but we may well have more than that. I'm not trying to frighten you, but we are at the end of an age. Some of you older people, and perhaps I, some of us may die before the tribulation begins, before Christ comes. Does that mean we should let down? No. Our life may end sooner. We need to press all the harder. These things are very, very real. Our life is in the balance. God has called us, and we've got to go all out for the kingdom of God. I press toward the high calling of God in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul said back in Philippians, the third chapter, you don't drift into God's kingdom. You press into God's kingdom. You grow in grace and in knowledge. 
Onward, Christian soldiers, we sang. And we've got to be Christian soldiers. We've got to get excited about it. We're battling our own human nature, the rottenness and the weakness within all of us. We're battling this world. And this world is getting to be a terrible place. It's so deceptive because they take abortion, they take homosexuality and all of these so-called gays, and they make a big joke of it. They have humor. And it's kind of interesting. They can make it funny. And then they can really make fun of anyone who's against all of their teachings, you know, make them look like a jackass. And Hollywood calls it the jackass formula. They literally do. They make anyone look like a jackass, a donkey, who doesn't go along with their modernism. They have a very clever way to do that, very clever use of humor. And so the young people pick up on this, they imitate this, they go right along with it. Okay to fornicate. Okay to be a homosexual. Okay to do this and that and something else. No, it's not. I'll tell you, when these things happen, Mr. O'Gwen talked about in the program, one-third dying of disease epidemics and famine. People are going to be screaming. They're going to be crying. And mothers will be turning back and forth in their bed, sobbing, sobbing, my baby, my baby, my husband. What's going on? Because they have not been willing to obey the Word of God. They're not being willing to get excited about getting involved with God and the truth of God and the way of God. That's what's wrong. They're not caring anything about their Creator. But brethren, in God's church, we do need to care. So he says, He who feeds on me will live because of me. Are you willing to feed on Christ? That doesn't sound very exciting to some of you, but it better sound exciting. That's the thing that you're called for. That's the thing for which you're living, to become united with Christ, to become united with God, and share eternity with them, fellowship with them, interact with them in a family, a whole spirit family called the kingdom of God, based on God's law, based on God's way of life. God will not let anyone into eternal life who does not have and exhibit that kind of character. And that's the character described not in, you know, in, in some little novel or something. It's described in this book. And we've got to feed on this book to have that. In First Peter chapter 3, we find a little more instruction here about this matter. First Peter chapter 3 and beginning in verse 13. Who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good, Peter asks. But even if you should utter or suffer for righteousness, yes, some of us will suffer. Somebody, boy, I didn't know this was going to happen. What do you mean you didn't know this was going to happen? God says all the way through the Bible that his servants are going to suffer. He tells you that again and again. All who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. First Timothy, I think it is, 3.12. Over and over he tells you these things. Or Second Timothy it is. So God tells us that. He says, you've got to understand this. You've got to be willing to suffer. But even if you suffer for righteousness, say, you're blessed and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason. Are you ready to give everyone an answer for the reason of the hope that is in you with meekness, not arrogance, Meekness and fear, a deep reverence for God. I hope you are, but I know many of our brethren are not. And some of you are afraid to. You're just bashful. I know that many times people in the world step out ahead of us, and sometimes they do it in the wrong way. 
I had a professor in my uh, class I took about halfway toward my master's degree in human resources development in uh, Zeusa Pacific University. And a big, tall professor named Dan Smith, very good teacher, but he invited me to lunch. He saw I knew some things and wanted to get better acquainted. And he said, you're sort of like Samuel. He told me, well, that's good. <laughs> and uh, he pictured me like Samuel. And uh, But anyway, he was, he was a lot bigger. He was about six, four or five, but I was uh, older and had more Bible understanding. But he wanted to pray at the beginning of the meal, right in a restaurant or something. Well, one day we did that, or maybe twice. I, I didn't object to that. I don't normally do that. But, you know, a lot of people do do that in the cafeterias around uh, Big Sandy College over in Tyler and Longview every now and then. You'll see some good, sincere Baptist or someone bow their head and some of them will even mutter or quietly pray. That's not a sin. They're not ashamed. But some of us in God's church have gone to the opposite extreme and we're almost afraid to let people know that we're Christians. We're almost afraid to talk about our religion. We've gone to the opposite extreme. Don't do that. Let's be a proud in the sense, not vain, but grateful would be the better word that God has called us. The word to be to the light of the world. That doesn't mean we've always got to pray in public. I'm not saying that. Probably better normally not to. But Paul did on occasion out there on that Roman ship as a prisoner in the middle of the Mediterranean. You know, when they had this horrible uh, storm and they were about to die. He stood in front of all of them, lifted up his hands to God and said, Great God of Abraham and bless God's blessing on the food in front of all these people on this ship. At that point, it was okay. They were scared. <laughs> and they somehow sensed he was a servant of God. So he did that. Jesus did when he was feeding the 5,000 on one occasion and other things like that, special occasions, even before the world. So let's not go the other extreme. Let's be grateful that God has called us to stand for God and be ready to give an answer when God says, well, the people said, well, why do you keep Saturday instead of Sunday? What do you answer? Well, uh, you know, you don't know what to say. Well, you ought to say because we're in the church of God and we're trying to restore apostolic Christianity. And by that we mean first century Christianity. We're trying to get back to exactly what Jesus Christ did and what the apostles did for, for decades and for generations. Oh, you know, there's not a whole lot they can answer with. They, oh, they didn't. Well, you can argue with them a little bit, but better not argue too much. But most of them don't even know enough to say no. They have not even been taught their own ideas. So they'll have to think about it, go away muttering to themselves and realize, well, these people apparently think they're following Jesus, so I guess it's okay. They think if you're following Jesus in almost any way you want to, that makes it okay. But you can tell them a little bit about the true Jesus Christ in humility and in the right way and say, well, Jesus kept the Sabbath. The apostles kept the seventh day. You'll notice on your calendar, George, that's the last day of the week. The week starts out right over here in the right-hand column. The seventh day is the Sabbath called Sabado in, or Sabado, whatever, in, in Spanish and, and Italian. That means literally the Sabbath. They don't call it Saturday. That's the name of it in some of these other languages, the Sabbath. They know which day is the Sabbath. The Pope said, as you know, you can, uh, not the Pope, but Cardinal uh, uh, Gibbon and Faith of Our Fathers, you could search the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and you will not find one line authorizing the observance of Sunday. Rather, the Bible teaches Saturday, the seventh day, he went on to describe. They know that. The Catholic scholars know that. The Protestant scholars know that, although some of them, and of course, the local pastors don't like to admit it. They think Sunday was the seventh day. It's not. Never has been. Never will be. But you can gently explain these things.
Can you explain these things carefully to people? What about the holy days? Could you show to them from the Bible how Zechariah 14 describes the coming government of God on this earth and how all the nations, not some nations, every nation on earth is going up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, how Christ kept the Feast of Tabernacles in John 7, how Christ is to live His life within us, how Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13, verse 8. Could you explain difficult scriptures like Colossians 2, 14, Ephesians 2, 15? They're not that difficult. I don't have time to go through that. I'm not afraid to at all. If you want to come up afterward, but I've done, done that year after year in epistles class, and we've had articles on those things. But how many of you read those articles carefully? Every one of us needs to read those articles and understand those things, those key uh, so-called difficult scriptures. They're not difficult if you studied the Bible. Many other topics people really don't understand. People even in God's church will often just go do this or that off the top of their head where the Bible clearly indicates they shouldn't because they don't have the mind of Christ just in common sense or common Christian living. They don't really study the Bible. They know we're here and we have a church on Saturday, but they don't seem to know too much more sometimes. 1 Corinthians, if you turn there, brethren, in verse uh, 7 now, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I mean. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 7. Paul writes, But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. You see, he's indicating the tremendous calling we have of becoming full sons of God. He doesn't cover it very much, but he's certainly hinting of that, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known it, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I has not seen or ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Awesome things in the future if we're willing to study this book, if we're willing to live by every word of God. Think about that as part of this sermon. Luke 4, verse 4, Jesus Christ. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. I know for a fact, because I've asked a number of people over the years, including Ambassador College graduates, not first-year students, graduates. Honestly, George, honestly, Joanne, have you read every single word of the Bible? Uh, well, you know, and we're busy and we have all these dances and clubs. Oh, okay. How can you live by every word of God and you haven't even read it? Think about that. So we really need to study the Bible. That's a terrible weakness that we have, even in the church of God, let alone in the world. So we want to feed on these things. God has revealed them to us by His Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things. Uh, yes, the deep things of God. He goes on, verse 11. For what man knows the things of a man... You know, the things about a man in detail, his thoughts, his plans, his hopes, his dreams, and so on, except the spirit of the man which is in him. We're not dumb brutes. We can visualize and we can daydream and we can postulate all kinds of things and have creative imagination and think of the future and plan even 20 years ahead and so on. Man, animals can't do that. Nothing indicates that. But we do have a spirit joined with our human brain, as we've explained. Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God, the awesome blessings that we have from our Creator. 
These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches. No, we're not into philosophy, which Paul condemned, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. And how does the Holy Spirit do that? Primarily through the Bible and then opening our minds so we can understand the Bible. The Holy Spirit will teach you all things, Jesus said, but you don't have a voice muttering in your inner ear. It comes through the Bible. And then God, through His Spirit, opening your mind to understand the Bible. That's how the Spirit does that. And so you're able to understand the things of God. These things we speak, not in words, which man's wisdom, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. You compare spiritual principles with spiritual situations or acts or whatever, and then you can see how the mind of God is being portrayed in this or that situation. You can see why Abraham did what he did. Looked awful to those who might have come out there. No one did. But what if the Ladies' Aid Society had been out on top of the hill that day, and here's this old man, this old man, mean old man, with a knife raised up, ready to kill his son. What would the Ladies' Aid Society think? Awful. And yet here was the man who was a servant of God, who became the father of the faithful, And he knew, and he knew that he knew that this voice, this overwhelming personality who appeared to him and told him to do this was God. He had tested that man. He tested that being, I should say, that personality, that voice over a number of years and perhaps decades. He wasn't in doubt about that. So he was willing to do it right away and obey God. And then God delivered him at the last minute and told him, stop. Now I know that you fear me, that you have a profound awe of me, God told Abraham on that occasion. Tremendous lesson there, but you have to compare all these spiritual principles to fully understand it. Yes, God can overrule His own law on occasion if God tells you to do something, but you'd better be right sure it's God, not your human imagination, of course. Anyway, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. He's not able to grasp spiritual things, nor can he know them. You know, you read the religious columns in the Charlotte Observer, and I'm trying to read them a lot. I tell my wife to say them, and I often tear some of them out and give too many of them to Monica to file. They're going to, the file cabinets are going to overrun her pretty soon. I know that. But we're trying to save these. They're so interesting. They have all these things. And even these preachers are saying, well, you know, if you have real love, well, you'll love, you know, you won't be homophobic. You know, they had these words and these approaches. Homophobic means you don't love man. Homophobic then means you ought to let the queers go ahead and do what the queers want to do, right? That's ridiculous. What does homosexuality bring about? It brings about disease, confusion of the mind. And as I said, if everybody became a homosexual and followed that approach, where would the world be? Where would humanity be? There wouldn't be any humanity at all. Because we would not have any children. Men can't have children with other men, nor women with women. So you have to understand that. It would absolutely destroy God's purpose. One of the most rotten, foul teachings abroad in the face of the earth at this time. And yet here are thousands of preachers going, well, don't worry about it, it's not bad. And they reason around very cleverly to people who don't know their Bible. And then when these preachers or other people write in, they have their letters coming in to the Charlotte Observer, they'll quote a little bit of the Bible. And then they'll say, well, uh, you know, back here Moses said this, but of course it's not spoken of. Jesus never talked about it. 
And they'll say, well, maybe they'll say the New Testament never talks about it. Well, Jesus did not talk about it directly, but Jesus says we're to live by every word of God and he inspired the Old Testament and he inspired the New Testament and Paul talks it and calls it an abomination. Vile passions, he says, and over and over condemns it. The whole New Testament has teachings on it many, many times, directly and indirectly. So men ought to realize that, but they don't because they don't study the Bible. But we've got to do it and compare spiritual things with spiritual principles. Verse 15, He who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by whom? By no one. By no other human being. Mr. Herbert Armstrong made a number of principles and observations and so on and basic laws. And he said way back about 1953 or 4 that smoking is sin. He said it's not a major sin, but it is a certain sin because it damages the temple of the Holy Spirit. And yet what happened right here in this state, North Carolina? What happened over in Kentucky? Did the ministers of the churches of God, church, churches I should say, not God churches, but the world churches lift up their voice? like a trumpet, and tell these cigarette growers and, and nicotine growers and, and manufacturers, you're killing people? Of course not. That was not popular. So very little was said about it. Very little was said about it. For who's known the mind of the Lord? As they could have condemned Mr. Armstrong back then. About 40 years too late, they came around and began to talk about it themselves. But who's known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we... And Paul is talking about himself and the ministry here when you study the context. We have the mind of Christ. Those who are really close to God. It doesn't mean just the ministry, but people who are mature. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual, he continues, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk. I just can give you the milk and that's about all you can bear. Not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you're still not able he tells who that? The Catholics down the road or the worshipers of Diana? No, the church of God at Corinth. He says, you are yet carnal. Verse 3. They were the church of God, but they didn't have the mind of God near to the extent they ought to have had. And many of us don't either. And when I say us, I want you local brethren to know, yes, I'm preaching at you, but I'm also preaching to this tape. I want all you brethren out there in the world, all of you together, get mad at me if you want to. I'm talking to all of you. We've got to have the mind of God. We've got to feed on Christ. We really, really do. And every one of us, if we're going to be in God's kingdom, we need to get excited about studying the Bible. That's the thing that can set this church apart, brethren. People that are really studying and studying the Bible and don't get mixed up because they know this word. This word is the real foundation of their lives. And they don't mess around with it. They really study it. So he says, who has known the mind of the Lord? You see, those who really study and understand the Bible, they have the mind of Christ. How can you have this mind? How can you therefore really prepare to be a king and a priest? A king's going to have to know God's laws and God's ways to administer those laws and those ways. A priest in the world tomorrow is going to have to teach people the priests were the teachers. Are you ready to be a teacher, you brethren, around the world? You brethren here? We've got to think about it. Are you really ready? Have you studied the Bible that much? Let me give you some principles here about this, the approach you should have. Turn back to Isaiah, if you would, at this point. Isaiah 
66. Some of you know where I'm going already, and that's good. I often do that. I used to try to show off to my wife when we were first married. Still do sometimes. I'd turn ahead at time, as you remember, <laughs> to beat the minister to it because I knew exactly what scripture he was going to next. So if you know, that's fine. You still ought to study it yourself. He says about all the things of the earth and heaven, verse 2, For all those things my hand has made, and those things exist, says the ever-living one. Verse 2, Isaiah 66, But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, a broken spirit, a deeply humble, surrendered spirit, and who trembles. Do you do that? Who trembles at my word. If something comes right from the Word of God, brethren, we can't mess around with it. We're not to reason around it. We're not to try to water it down. We're not to try to change it. We're to have a profound respect because that Word comes from the One who gives us life and breath. And so we've got to have that attitude toward the Word of God. This book has been died for by many, many men. Many of them were not converted. William Tyndale, you can read about, and others back in England who tried to translate the Bible, and they paid for it with their lives. But they were sincere men, and they had to stand up against the society of the time in order to help preserve the Bible, translate the Bible, publish the Bible. Down through time, many have died to help bring us this book. And let's appreciate this book. We take it for granted too much today. We really do. Let's deeply appreciate it and fear and tremble before the God of the Bible So, brethren, another key is to pray for, you know, real spiritual mindedness. Pray for the real mind of Christ. Ask God to have you have the mind of Christ as you approach the Bible. And then truly study God's Word. Don't just look at it. Don't read it carelessly or quickly. Study. Carefully read. Mumble to yourself if you have to. Mark it with marks, you know, red and blue pencil or all kinds. Some of them have about five different colors. My wife gets on me because I overmark, and that's true, but at least I mark <laughs> and try to get it branded into my brain so I can remember it and understand it. Study the Bible because it's the revealed mind of God. Then review and counsel with true ministers of God and true Christian brethren if you want to review the things you've read and talk about them with others. Talk about this sermon with others afterward in a positive way, okay? <laughs> Talk about these things, share them. That review, you see, in talking about it helps you remember it. And certainly then, as you study the Bible and learn things, take action. Put the Bible to work in your life. If you don't put it to work, you're not going to remember it near as well and will not have near near as much meaning. Mr. Armstrong used to say, knowledge is of no value except as it is used or applied. You can have all kinds of knowledge up in your head, But unless you use it in some way, it's just a theory that in your mind it doesn't do anyone else any good. So you've got to use it. I want to give you, brethren, some keys. Some of you know these, but I want to review these too. I've got ten commandments to Bible study. (laughs) Okay, separate. Ten keys is a better way to put it. Ten keys to Bible study. And I hope you'll take notes, you note-takers who are taking notes, and think about this. First of all, pray before you study. I don't always do this, but I try to, to bow my head. I don't get on my knees most of the time, but I just bow bow my head quietly wherever I'm in my chair. Say, Father, help me to understand. Guide my mind. Help me to concentrate. 
help me to remember, help me to use this information. Ask God as you studied the Bible and as you begin to study it to help you and to guide your mind. The second key, study the Bible by the book method. That is, as I did when I was first being called, I literally started right through the New Testament. I opened the book of Matthew and I read it. I'd read two, three, four chapters and I had my red and blue old pencil, you know, and I'd mark same things with blue and red. And some have a key promises are green and prophecies red and, and laws are yellow and something else is something else. I just had the two. And to me, uh, red was very important and blue was fairly important. Not much else is left out of Charlotte. <laughs> I tended to mark too much. But at any rate, uh, I, I marked the Bible that way. And therefore, I was thinking, getting my mind on it. No, I left some, some verses blank, of course. And, but the key things. And then sometimes I would put uh, uh, a, a carrot, you know, like that. And pointing to some key point and so on. Sometimes, as my uncle did, I used to follow his example, Uncle Paul. He would circle a word, and then the thing was explained three or five verses down. You kind of circle it and draw a line, and then the other word down several verses later helps explain what's up there. Therefore, you can look at this, and then, you know, six, nine months later or three years later, this ties it right in, you see, and you can remember quickly how to explain it. The verse 7, 8, 12 verses later explains this verse back here. And you can see that because you, you know, kind of put an ink pen around, a circle around the one word and draw it right down, whatever. So you want to really learn to do that, do the book method. I would study three or four chapters of Matthew, reading them carefully, marking them as I went along, three or four chapters. And then I would go back and review those three or four chapters nearly every time because I'd learn how to study in junior high school, uh, junior college, I mean, more than I knew in high school, and taking some courses along that line. So I would, I would review at the end, you see, by going back over. Then the next time I studied, rather than, let's say, I studied uh, uh, Matthew, the first three chapters. So instead of starting in chapter 4, I would quickly go back and review, not, not slowly, but quickly go back and review the highlights of the first three chapters. Now, why do I do that? Because it brands it into your brain. You read it once, then you read it again and marking it. You have to go back and know what to mark. You see, that's twice. Then you review it at the end of the study. That's three times. And then you quickly review the highlights when you come back the next day. That's four times. It helps you remember a lot more than if you just quickly go over it once. Then you read perhaps chapters four, five, and six, you know, and do the same thing there. And then you read three more or whatever time you have, two chapters or four chapters, and keep going all the way through Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, then John, then Acts, then Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and so on. You read slowly, carefully, thoughtfully through the whole New Testament. And there you get the feeling of the fiber, the fabric, the way it's worded all the way through. They can't confuse you by pulling some scripture out of context and just quoting half a scripture. Look here. You say, no, this is part of this whole passage back here. You really understand it better that way. Now, some of you prefer subject study, and that's fine, but you should use both. I'll be coming to subject study in a moment. Do you know how Jesus studied the Bible primarily? And do you know how Peter and James and John and Paul studied the Bible primarily? They followed my example. <laughs> no, I wasn't around yet, so they weren't following my example. But think about it. They didn't have all these other books to turn to. They didn't have a concordance. All they had in most cases was the scroll of Isaiah. 
or the scroll of Jeremiah. So they had to go over and over that scroll, if you follow me, really understand that one book. And then later, out of the local synagogue library or wherever they could get a scroll, they would read one of the other books and meditate on that in their mind. Then they had to make the connection. And so far as we know, there were no concordances. They didn't have the whole Bible all printed up. Printing was not invented until Gutenberg came along, you know, about 1,500 years later, and so on. You see what I mean? They had to read through each book in that way. So you do that, you really understand. And then later I went back and started the Old Testament. Of course, you can get bogged down, you know, so-and-so begat so-and-so and so-and-so, you know, but you can read quickly over that. I'll give you permission to read quickly over that. It's not very sexy anyway. It just goes right on. They just begat them and went on. <laughs> so anyway, uh, you just read quickly over that part. But you get the picture of how God guided different men and different nations in those passages. And it was, you able to have then the mind of God starting right through the book of, uh, of Genesis, Exodus, and so on. And get the mind of God reading all the way through the Old Testament. All the way through Daniel, Ezekiel, and so on. In the, Old, in the Old Testament prophecies. So understand that. Here's another way then, of course, is what we call the subject study or topic study. And with our concordances and topical references and Nave's topical Bible, that is N-A-B-E apostrophe S. Some of you have that, some don't. That's an excellent help. He will give you a lot of scriptures on any one subject. But remember this, that every single Bible help is suspect. <laughs> Use it, but remember who it was written by. It was not written by converted men, I'm sorry to say. Most of them were sincere men. They were sincere. They gave their lives to this, many of them. Not, not in death, but, you know, just long hours and decades of work. And many of them were good men, quote-unquote, according to the, what they understood. So that's helpful. But they did not understand so as you're going through these things, remember that when you get to Nave's topical Bible, is Nave going to point out all the good scriptures to help you prove the Sabbath? Well, no, he doesn't believe in keeping the Sabbath. Why should he do that? You know, he covers some of those scriptures, but not all those scriptures. So to get the complete scriptures on them, you'd have to go to Strong's Exhaustive Concordance, or perhaps to save time, you might go to Young's Analytical Concordance, because Young, of course, covers most of the references to the word Sabbath or Holy Days or Feast or Jew or Israel or whatever. But it leaves out all the ands and buts and these and, you know, stuff that may not mean very much. But sometimes you have to even go to Strong's to get other things. You can get the uh, Greek and Hebrew from either one. But it's good to have both if you're really going to get heavy into Bible study. The topical method is that you study the Sabbath. And you look up every single scripture in the Bible about the Sabbath, the seventh day, and God's sign, and words like that, key phrases, you know, like that. And then you'll see, of course, in Genesis 2, that on the seventh day, God ended His work which He had made, and He hallowed that day. He made that day holy. And then you'll see later, the next reference directly is in uh, Exodus 16. And remember, as you get to thinking, you'll have to remember, because it's best to do the subject study, the book study first probably, but you'll get to Exodus 16, and then you remember, well, uh, that was, that was four chapters, that was sometime before they came to Mount Sinai, so he had not given the Old Covenant. Before they even came to Mount Sinai, he says, how long refuse you to keep my Sabbaths? So the Sabbaths were still in existence, you see, from Genesis right on through. 
And then he tells you, Genesis 20, verse 8, I think, remember the Sabbath day. He doesn't say, I'm giving you something new. He says, remember, they'd known about it. It had been in their tradition, but in their, their Egyptian captivity for all those years, some of them probably lost it. So he said, remember the Sabbath day and put a fire under it, get it hot. He says, no, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It is already holy. It doesn't need to be made that way. God made it that way. You're supposed to keep it that way. And then you go on through the Old Testament. And in Ezekiel 20, you find Sabbath as a sign. In Isaiah 65, you find that even in tomorrow's world, people will be keeping the Sabbath. And then you find Jesus kept it. Luke 4:16. it was his custom. You'll find Paul as his custom was, his manner was, however it's worded. He kept the Sabbath. That gets back in Acts 17. All the way through, you find God's servants keeping the Sabbath. No question. You see, it's all the way through. And you can look in history and see that the early church of God kept it for generations. Generations, long after everything was nailed to the cross. They were keeping the seventh-day Sabbath. They had not been nailed to the cross. Paul had not done away with it at all. So you can do a subject study on the Sabbath. You can do a subject study on heaven. And every time you read about heaven, you'll find that the heaven and heavens are the earth, are the Lord's. The earth has He given the children of men. But best to use the term heaven and earth. And He says, "Blessed are the meek." Matthew five five. For they shall inherit the earth, not heaven. And Jesus said, "No man has ascended to heaven." John three thirteen. No man has gone there. See. And of course, it shows David has not gone to heaven. Back in Acts, he is dead and buried, and his tomb remains with us to this day. Peter says, David did not go to heaven. And you can look up all these scriptures and you can begin to get the picture of what the Bible very, very clearly says. And here's Billy Graham and about half his columns talk about going to heaven. But the Bible does not say that. Bible never says that. I used to offer $1,000, as you know, some of you on the uh, Tomorrow's World or the uh, World Ahead program on the radio program. I'll give any one of you listeners $1,000 if you can give me any proof that the reward of the Christian is going to heaven as his ultimate reward. Someone discouraged me from doing that like that's too something. I need to review that again, but I think we should still do it if it doesn't hurt anything. That just kind of gets people to think, wow, he's putting a challenge out there. Yes, I am. And they'd better prove it or shut up. Put up or shut up. If you want $1,000, try to prove otherwise. They can't do it. I'm not afraid of losing $1,000. They can prove it. That would help this whole church, wouldn't it? We'd all change and observe Sunday. <laughs> that's not going to happen. I think you know that. All right. Anyway, that's the topic study. Go through a certain topic about the Trinity. Look up all the scriptures on the Trinity. Get the word Trinity and look it up. That's fun because it ain't there. <laughs> it just isn't there. There isn't any word Trinity in the Bible or any of the concordances. It is not there. You're looking up something that doesn't exist. But you can read other scriptures they try to use and see how, of course, they're misapplied very clearly. Then, that's the third key. First, pray before you study. Ask God's guidance. And ask Him to open your mind and lead you and help you remember and use it. Second, use the book method of study. Thirdly, use the topic method of study other times. Fourth, always get the context straight. What we mean by context, most of you know, But in other words, try to get it straight in the passage. If you have a scripture, try to look at the passage, the whole chapter or the part of the chapter it's in, so you know what this is talking about. 
Mr. Herbert Armstrong used to, of course, have fun talking about how the old, old-time evangelistic preacher uh, quoted Matthew 24, Top knot, come down! And women used to wear top knots, so he preached, Top knot, come down! And Jesus said, Let him not, let not him who's on the housetop come down to take anything out of his house. Top knot, come down! And you see what I mean? Just crazy. It has nothing to do with anything. So, uh, you know, there's like the little jokes about the shortest man in the Bible, Nehi, the son of so-and-so or whatever. And then, well, no, the shortest man was shoe height. That's right, shoe, ha- shoe height the Bildad or whatever he was, just the height of a shoe and uh, all this kind of stuff. But just that silly. And yet people believe these crazy things because they do not understand, they do not study the Bible and they don't get it. I know one of our very fine ministers years ago was trying, I think sincerely, the time he got kind of uh, over-enthusiastic in a number of things he said, but he was trying to prove that Mr. Armstrong could not die. And he really did. I had to talk to him about it, and uh, I got sent to Hawaii for my pains. That was one reason. I got, but that was the immediate thing that happened after that. But it was, it was Philippians, if you want to know uh, about it. The, scripture, the main scripture he was using here is Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6 where the Apostle Paul said, "...being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ." Well, obviously, Mr. Armstrong couldn't die because he had to finish the work. Right? No, that's not what it's talking about. God began a good work in the Apostle Paul, didn't he? But Paul died, (laughs) all right? And Paul did not finish all the work at that time. This was not talking about that. If you read the whole context, he says in verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always making every and every prayer, making requests for you with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you, as God calls each one of us individual Christians and gives us our calling and our opportunity now in this life, He will continue to work with us until we have shown Him clearly at least one way or the other where we're headed. He's not going to let us cut off, be cut off prematurely, if you follow me. He will complete the work until the day of Christ, or obviously until the time that we are dead in Christ. So that's the context, and that's what he's talking about. It was not a personal reference to Mr. Armstrong at all, and uh, that was the furthest thing from Paul's mind when he wrote this scripture. But people can put twists on the Bible God's church, and you need to understand that, brethren. Sincere people, they just twist it around to make it mean what they say. There's a preacher uh, over here somewhere, uh, not real close, but let's say over here somewhere, and he he uh, <laughs> he, he takes a lot of these references to. Uh, uh, Elijah and Elisha and uh, to uh, these great men, John the Baptist and other things, and he applies them directly to himself, you see. And so he thinks he is this and that and something else. Well, the Bible doesn't call him all those things, but he tries to do that. Now, I don't try to do that. Some people say, well, you're this or that. I say, no, I'm not. And if God wants to show that I'm, you know, Elijah or that I'm the modern Elijah or that I'm a modern John the Baptist or that I'm this or that, He can do that. He can show, again, a great miracle and powerful vision and all this and that. I don't think He's going to do that. I mean that. I don't think that at all. I'm just saying He could show those things if He wanted to. But the point is, we must not try to read those things into the Bible out of our personal vanity. 
That's just a lot of vanity. That's all that it is. But it's good to get those things straight so that we don't fall into that trap. Always get the context straight. Key number five to understanding the Bible. Let the Bible interpret the Bible, brethren. Don't just interpret the Bible. Think you read a passage, oh, I think it means this. Well, what if what you think it means contradicts about five or 15 or 25 other scriptures? Well, Jesus said back in John 10, and I didn't put this in my reference. I think I can find it here real quick, though. In John 10, uh, verse 35, Jesus said, If he called them gods, or Elohim in the old Hebrew, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken... Jesus said, Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you're blaspheming? Because I said, I'm the Son of God. Don't my works even bear witness of me? No, the Word of God cannot be broken. You can't break God's Word. You can't use one Scripture to break or to negate or to destroy the meaning or contradict another Scripture. You say, well, I found some that seem to contradict. Yes, I understand that. There are all kinds of seeming contradictions. There have been whole books read out, uh, written and published showing the contradictions of the Bible. And some of them are helpful. They'll point out little, you know, silly contradictions. But then some we understand from the point of view of God's law and purpose, you know, and then we have to explain them the right way uh, that the world might not fully understand. But we don't have to twist anything to do it. We do not have to twist anything to do it. Let one scripture interpret the other so that you're not just interpreting it through your own human imagination. Notice Isaiah 28. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 28, if you would, and uh, read this here. Isaiah 28, I'm going to begin. I'd like to read earlier, but verse 11. Verse 11. For with stammering lips and another tongue he will speak to this people, to whom he said, This is the rest with which you rest, that you may cause the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing. Yet they would not hear. So, of course, he was showing how ancient Israel rebelled in the teaching. We know that. But he's giving a principle, he said here. Yet they would not hear. But the word of the eternal was to them, precept upon precept, Precept upon precept, he repeats, line upon line, line upon line, and he's clearly talking about the Bible, frankly, in this passage, that they might uh, hear a little and bear a little. Glad I didn't leave that word out, that part. Hear a little and bear a little. Why? Why? So the whole world would understand and be converted? No. <laughs> you know, we'd like to have the Bible be great big Roman numeral 1, 2, 3, and ABC. We would like for the New Testament to begin, now the words of Jesus Christ, I'm saying that every one of the commandments in the Old Testament is to be kept exactly this way or that way, and here is the Sabbath and how to keep it, and, the new, and all this stuff. That would make it, nobody could possibly get confused. But did God intend that? No. He allows people to be confused. He wrote the Bible, a little here and a little there. Why? That they might go, oh, we've got the truth. Oh, no, we don't. We just grab onto a little bit of the truth. They think they've got it. We go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. He wrote the Bible so that men would not get it straight. They would stumble over it and they would get the wrong meaning. And that's exactly why he wrote the Bible, a little here and a little there. He did not intend people to fully understand it at this time. 
That's why, you know, my old Sunday school teacher taught me, and many of your Sunday school teachers too, they'd say, children, the reason uh, Jesus talked in parables was because they were nice shepherds back there, and they raised crops, and it was to make the meaning clear for these nice shepherds. Oh, yeah? No, you read in the book of Mark and Matthew that Jesus spoke in parables so they could not hear. They could not understand. And he makes that very clear to blind them. God says and tells us back in John, uh, he says, no man can come to the Father, you see, except he's drawn by the Holy Spirit. No man can come to the Son except the Spirit of the Father draw him. I think that's the way it's worded. So uh, John 6, 44 and I believe 65. So you have that twice repeated. You can't come to God unless God calls you. But if he calls you, you can still fall away. You see, if you're not careful, if you're not willing to study the Bible, if eternal life doesn't mean enough to you to study to get, you know, get it straight, you are called to do that too. And God does give you the opportunity. So he wrote the Bible here a little, there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Yes, or caught as it is in the New King James. I'm paraphrasing the old here as I sometimes do. So get the context. He wrote it here a little. He'll talk about the Sabbath over here. And then you'll read over in 1 Corinthians, I guess it's 16, how they came together to take up an offering on the first day of the week. So all the good Protestant ministers say, well, that means they were keeping uh, Sunday, you see. They are taking up this offering on the first day of the week. Or were they? No. Other scriptures tell you, and that scripture shows you, they didn't say anything about worshiping on that day. It just says they're to take up an offering. He says, let every man lay by himself. Lay by in store. Doesn't say come to church. It says gather the crops, lay by them, get them ready. You see, on the first day of the week, which is a work day. And all the other scriptures say, what? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Remember it. If God said forget it, they would forget it. But if he says remember it, wait a minute. <laughs> if God said remember it, they would forget it. And if he says forget it, they would remember it. So that's kind of the way we do. We're human beings and we have this attitude, this approach too often. All right, let the Bible interpret the Bible. Number six, key number six, get the Hebrew and Greek meaning straight as best you can through looking up the words when necessary in Strong's Concordance and lexicons, commentaries, and so forth. And you can always do that if you want to. But remember this, brethren, about 99 and 99 one-hundredths time, that is not a problem. I really mean that. You have several translations, and one translation, if doesn't make it clear enough, and normally will. These men have devoted their lives to translating. They know the Hebrew and Greek a lot more. Don't let some half-baked scholar, by the way, come along. Oh, the Greek means this. There was a guy in Worldwide that did this, and he would never have been accepted as a Greek scholar anywhere else. But he proclaimed himself a Greek scholar and tried to change around the meanings of various things and even told us Americans we didn't even understand our own language. Some of you remember hearing that tape. Anyway, it was kind of fun listening to him if you understood the truth. But uh, don't, don't let some half-baked Greek scholar... This guy told me, by the way, and I, I like him. He, I don't think he was ever really understood, but he meant well. He told me one time, he said, Mr. Meredith, he said, it's not the Greek that solves the problem. He said, if understanding the Bible depended upon the Greek, how come we don't have any members in Greece? Oh, he, he was Greek. He understood. No members in Greece. See, that's not the key to the Bible. 
You have the King James, the New King James, the New New International Version. You have strong. You have uh, you know whatever Moffat, Goodspeed, Farrar, Fenton, all kinds of translations, and you can compare one with the other. But you can look up the Hebrew and Greek occasionally, and it will help you. But don't think that's the final answer. I would say, then also in connection, you need to use commentaries and Bible helps on occasion. It's all right to do that. But use commentaries and Bible helps very carefully. Very carefully. Why? Because they're not only written by unconverted men, but frankly, I have found, and you can find this yourself if you look at it, they nearly always, virtually always go off on prophecy because they don't even understand the keys to prophecy. They virtually always go way off on prophecy. They will go off on the origin and nature of man You see, they think that we are an immortal soul living here. And at the end of life, the track is switched up to go to heaven or switched down to go to hell. So they don't understand why we're here or where we're going. They're always against God's law. They think you're just under grace and you don't have to keep God's law. And they have several other things they're off on. Just those key things, though, those are three of the key things they always go off on. So when you understand that, then they can give you certain helpful points about the background of a book or the date or technical little points that aren't going to conflict with their doctrine. But they do have misunderstanding on these key issues. And you have to recognize that when you follow or read these commentaries or Bible helps. So it's best, brethren, again, to study the Bible. Please get this straight. Study the Bible. Not books by men about the Bible. You get it? That's what the Protestant ministers do. They read books by men about the Bible, and most of them don't really know the Bible that well. They've read it, but they don't really, they, they read all this stuff, these theology books and all this other stuff, and therefore they can't really quote and they're not familiar with vast portions of the Bible. They're not studying that. They're reading their, their theology books. And, of course, the Catholic monks the same way. Read their prayer books and all this gobbledygook. Study the Bible. And don't read all kinds of theology books. One of the men in Worldwide, was in the, the main leaders, uh, was who got us off track, was studying. And his buddy, who grew up with him, told me, he says, he says listen, Mr. Mary, he was a friend of mine. He, said, he says, George is reading all these theology books. And he says, I'm his friend. I grew up with him. And I kid him. I said, this is crazy. But he says, George believes this stuff. It's all new to him. It's right, just Protestantism, but it's new to him. So he thinks it's exciting and he believes it. And I said, well, that's crazy. That could be dangerous. And a few years later, the whole church believed it. That's truth. I was there. I experienced that. A few years later, the whole church believed it. And a lot of us had to leave. Well, we didn't all believe it, but you know what I mean. The church as a whole, I should say, believed that stuff that this young man was reading. You read those books and things and focus on that apart from the Bible and you can really get confused. All right, the, uh, that's uh, uh, point number seven. Point number eight, key number eight, uh, is I want to read 2 Timothy 3 here. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and beginning in verse 14. Paul writes, but as you, he told this young evangelist, continuing the things you've learned and been assured of, knowing that from whom you've received them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures. What Holy Scriptures? The New Testament? No, it hadn't been written yet. What are the Holy Scriptures Timothy was reading? The Old Testament. 
And the scholars have to acknowledge that. There wasn't any New Testament when Timothy was a child. The Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture, see, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Certainly the New Testament interprets the Old, we understand that, and supersedes, but it doesn't do away with it. It simply magnifies the law. All Scripture is given by inspiration from God. And the literal Greek, as you know, is God breathed. The word means literally God breathed. It came right out from God. These modern scholars say, well, you know, it's okay to have homosexuality because Paul was writing in the milieu of his time. And in his time, that was bad, so okay. He said it's all right to have women preachers because back then the Jews were uh, macho, arrogant uh, jackasses and they didn't understand because today we understand. So it's okay to have women preachers because Paul didn't understand. Paul didn't understand? God was writing Paul's letters just through him as a human instrument. God was writing these scriptures that condemn homosexuality. God was writing these scriptures that show clearly that abortion is murder and so on. So all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine. That's where we'd better get our doctrine, not out of some Protestant theology book, for reproof. And brethren, as you study the Bible, please let the Bible correct you where you're wrong. Try to study it in that attitude, not as a club to beat someone else over the head with. Now, I studied the Bible in preparing a sermon to think, what am I going to say here and there? But as my wife and children know, nearly always I studied the Bible quite a bit that morning just on my own before I even start to prepare. I don't spend a lot of time preparing the sermon because I know my commentary and my concordance is mainly in my head from all the years of Bible teaching. But I've got to let the Bible correct me and teach me. I can't just study and think, well, I've got to do this or that. So all Scripture is given by inspiration from God. It's profitable for reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible equips us thoroughly. We don't need all these other books. It's certainly all right to read our booklets. I've written most of them. I hope you will read them. They're just sermons in print. But you're to check up. As I say, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow our articles, follow our booklet, but check up and see they come from the Bible. That's the whole point. They're just sermons in print. They do not take the place of the Bible. We don't have uh, these books like the Book of Mormon and the Mary Baker Eddy's book, uh, whatever it is that they quote in the Christian Science and all these other things. We don't have the Bhagavad Gita and the Koran and all of our own books. We use the Bible and the Bible, and that's it. All right. Uh, then, key nine, study regularly, brethren. Please don't just study and say, well, I've studied, you know, this before. I'm familiar with all this. No, study regularly. I've told you before, I don't think God expects us to study necessarily every single day. The Apostle Paul was sometimes in prison. He was sometimes bound with a chain. Sometimes we're on a trip, but that doesn't mean we're better to skip the Bible for, for a week or two or three. No, I don't mean that. Regularly read it, if you possibly can, you know, four or five or six times a week. But if some emergency comes, there may be a time you won't read it, but read it regularly. Because if you stop studying this book, if you start letting this book flow through your mind and clean your mind up, if you stop praying to God on your knees, Satan the devil will begin to get at you and you will go off a little bit 
and then after another few days you'll go up a little bit more, and then something else will get at you. Satan, we're not ignorant of his devices, as Paul said. He will cause you to get taken off for something, some teaching, or he will let you get bitter because you're away from God, or some human lust will get the best of you because you are not feeding on Christ. Study the Bible. This church, brethren, around the world is based on the Bible. One of the main things Mr. Armstrong always emphasized was to live by every word of God. You know that. Every word of God. So let's really study it. Boy, we can be leaders in tomorrow's world. And we can be better leaders now if we really learn to study this book. So regularly study it. And key number 10, remember the key, a basic key, is Christ's example and the apostolic Christianity that we teach. What did Jesus do? What did the apostles do? Someone can get you on some difficult scripture, quote-unquote, in Colossians or Galatians. And if you don't think, you'll think that somehow that overrides everything else. But very quickly, you can go back to what? To the foundation, Jesus Christ. What did Jesus do? Didn't Jesus know how to be a Christian? Did He keep the Sabbath? Did He keep the Holy Desert? Of course He did. So always remember that key. What did Christ and the original apostles do? That's so important. Brethren, remember these ten keys. Pray before you study. Ask God's guidance. Number two, use the book method. Go right through the books bit by bit. Number three, study a subject or topic. Number four, always get the context straight. Number five, let the Bible interpret the Bible. Number six, uh, get the Hebrew and Greek straight through lexicons, commentaries, and other Bible helps, like Strong's Concordance. Look it up. Number seven, but use these commentaries, lexicons, other things sparingly. Remember, they're all, of course, tainted because their authors just didn't understand. They were sincere, no doubt. Number eight, remember, in the fear of God, uh, let the Bible correct you. In the fear of God, let the Bible correct you and give you reproof. Have that attitude. Say, I'm willing to take correction as I study the Bible. And number nine, study regularly. Don't just study for a few weeks and then wait a few weeks before you study again. You've got to feed on Christ. You can eat your physical food and you think, I've got to have that. I don't have to have this. Yes, you do have to have this. You need to feed on Christ. Regularly study the Bible. Regularly pray. And number ten, remember the key of Christ's example and the example of the apostolic church of God. So remember these keys. Use these keys, brethren. Use them. I beseech you to use these keys in your life. For your very life really depends upon it.